This is Meditations in Molotovs. I am your host, Vince Emanuele, and you are listening to the Progressive Radio Network, where you can find us every Monday at 1 p.m. Central Time. So a few days ago, I tried to log into Skype, and it redirected me to some Microsoft page, and I guess they switched my account profile around. I don't know. I, I'm such... Uh, I obviously need to learn more about how this functions. So <laughs> it's just a, it's just ridiculous. I don't, I don't understand how any of these functions, and I, I don't have the patience to like look into this stuff. I just want to click buttons and make things work. So anyway, that might sound highly ignorant of me, but nonetheless, it is, as they say, what it is. So um, today. Net neutrality, everybody wants to talk about net neutrality. Let's go through, the other day I had wrote on social media that, let me get to it real quick, Just read it real quick. There's a lot of responses from people and I want to respond to the folks who wrote on here. I think it would be a reasonable thing to do. So I wrote the overwhelming majority of internet traffic is comprised of people wasting time on social media, watching pornography, and consuming goods and services. The latest data suggests that close to 36% of internet traffic is people watching Netflix and close to 70% of the overall traffic is people streaming videos. And let's be honest, people are not watching Noam Chomsky lectures. Simply look at the viewing numbers on a platform such as YouTube. In other words, Go to YouTube, click Noam Chomsky Lecture, and find the most up-to-date, high-definition, wonderfully shot version of a Noam Chomsky Lecture, and you're lucky if you get 50 or 60,000, maybe 100,000 views. If you go on YouTube and you search the most absurd things, you'll find tens of millions of hits. So you know, hundreds of times uh, more attention and interest is paid to absurd videos than there are anything of substance. And it doesn't have to be Chomsky. I mean, I'm just using him, him as the sort of most prominent example. You can use any other thinker you wish, and their numbers are going to be that much lower because they don't have that name or body of work. Other studies have shown that 30% of all data shared on the internet is pornography. So I've long thought about a day when the internet would no longer be available to the masses either through ecological devastation, which is a very real threat, or a complete breakdown of our fragile and crumbling infrastructure, which was highlighted in Ted Koppel's book, Lights Out, which I recommend people read. We, in quotations, don't control the internet. Here, people would be wise to revisit the old Marxian notion of the commons, at the sake of sounding dogmatic and outdated, ordinary folks don't control the means of production. Hence, our influence over how the Internet functions, its content, or aim is quite limited. Put differently, we don't control the infrastructure that supports the World Wide Web. Satellites, the electric grid, fiber optic cables, or the infinite amount of materials and manpower that's required to keep the entire system functioning. I see virtually no real-world material evidence that would suggest that the Internet has radically transformed society for the better, at least if we're talking about things such as war, famine, climate change, ecological devastation, systemic racism, poverty, housing, health care, so on and so on. Hell, it would be hard to argue that people have benefited at all from the web. 
In fact, I would argue that we might be better off if the internet, at least as we know it, was killed. Perhaps then people would spend more time with the real world, nature and people that is, and less time in front of two-dimensional screens. Okay, so just to read through, because some of the comments are actually quite, quite useful and quite instructive. Mary Morin writes, try Alan Watts. I happen to like stuff like that. So do I, Mary. Not everyone is a zombie on here. I didn't say that, and I totally agree. And then she writes, but yes, I agree. Most people are addicted to social media, porn, and shopping. Well, social media, porn, and shopping are designed to be addictive. So this isn't an accident. And I think it's really important to keep that in mind. There was an article that I posted about a month ago that was from The Guardian in the UK. Uh, they were interviewing tech entrepreneurs and developers and featured a couple of gentlemen who were played a really important role in developing the latest technology and applications for Facebook and Twitter. And they are using psychiatrists, psychologists, sociologists, and all of the above in the testing phases of new technology. The idea is to make this technology as addictive as humanly possible. And so they're looking at models like slot machines. You know, that's why a lot of games and, and uh, uh, applications that people use on their phone are reminiscent of these sort of casino games that people play on computers as well. That's not by accident. And we can go on and on and on, but everything from the colors that are used. So Facebook, for instance, saw more than a hundred times increase in the amount of people interacting with their notifications when they changed their notification bubble from blue to red. So just very simple things like this, all the way to, again, designing programs uh, with addictive uh, properties in mind. Millie Naren says, Psy. Mark Crispin Miller says, a drug. Amy Waters says, the potential for education is boundless yet untapped. This is true. The opportunity for education with the World Wide Web is boundless, and it is definitely untapped. But in order to use a form of technology in order for a form of technology to be used in such a way one has to live in a culture that actually values education so in other words just because a new form of technology comes out and it can provide and it has the potential to provide different opportunities does not mean that that's number one, the aim of that technology. Number two, the people who control and own this technology have no interest in educating people. Number three, we don't control this technology, meaning we have a very limited uh, scope of what we can actually do with it. And number four, we don't live in a culture that values education or values intellectual curiosity or values philosophy or values critical thought or values analytical thought. So, it's not surprising that the potential has been untapped uh, because that's exactly how the system is designed. And if you design a system as such within a culture that does not value popular education, then it should come as no surprise that that potential remains untapped. A person replied to Amy and said, I started my career based on educational resources found entirely on the internet. 
I'm a self-taught machinist, which is very rare since the majority of machinists go to tech school and or participate in an apprenticeship program. I've recently started a new job at the same time as two others who went to Ivy Tech and have NIMS certification in six different areas of machining. The company does a great deal of on-the-job training, so they have new employees take a knowledge assessment, which tells them what areas they need improvement. I scored 83%. They scored in the 50s. I agree that the potential is mostly untapped, but also companies have no idea what to do with people who have used those educational resources. I applied to a ton of companies that basically said, no certification, no journeyman card, no job, which is a real shame. I also applied to apprenticeships and they didn't want anything to do with someone who didn't start in tech school. High school seniors are more likely to get into a company than me, even though my knowledge base is is significantly more vast. Well, that's an interesting individual situation. This is not a systemic problem though. So there's going to be individuals, and I'm assuming as I read through these comments, there will be individuals who have outlier experiences. Casey, you are an outlier, meaning you are not part of the broader scope of people and the broader numbers of people in U.S. society who have the capability to do that. It is true that I guess companies should find a way to find uh, to utilize that knowledge or utilize that skill set, but that's not the aim of my critique, nor is that one of my primary concerns. Because again, the amount of people who are doing what you did is so few and far between uh, that it's honestly not worth discussing uh, if we're talking about the broader society and systemic issues, which again, are what we try to focus on. We are not liberals, we are not libertarians. Hence, we focus on how systems function and how those systems play a role in determining the lives of the vast majority of the public not the outliers. Julia Ballering, Ballinger, sorry, Julia Ballinger Dalton. I watch Chris, Chris Hedges lectures and anyone exposing the virtues of losing more freedoms is brainwashed and ignorant beyond repair. I don't know what that means, but yes, I also watch Chris Hedges lectures. And I enjoy them. Arwen Murr says, you do not sound outdated. You sound wise. Well, thank you, Arwen. I was thinking along these lines last night. There isn't much good that comes from technology. We need to get outdated and back to what is important. Thank you for sharing. I don't know if I'd quite refer to things as outdated or nor would I say that there's nothing good that comes from technology. I I will just simply say that we have to understand where this technology comes from, who controls it, how it's developed, what's required to develop it, how is it implemented, and in what ways Does all of those processes play a role in our daily lives and uh, in the lives of uh, many millions and billions of people around the world, including the natural world? Uh, Derek Jensen writes, my friend Jordan Brown has just made an absolutely fabulous film about this very topic. It hasn't officially launched yet, but it will within a week or two. I don't know if Jordan is okay with this being on YouTube already, but it's a fantastic film everyone needs to see, and I don't say that sort of thing often. The name of the film is Stare Into the Lights, My Pretties. This is a documentary about the world of screens we are immersed in. How did we get here and who benefits? Yes, I very much look for it. Um, very much look forward to 
to checking that out. And I encourage others to as well. I, I don't know if the full film is on YouTube already, but I'll definitely check it out. Liz Whitman posts an article about World of Warcraft. The internet is pornography. Joseph Cohn, as a former journalist who spent 38 years in mass media working mostly for corporations owned and controlled by the wealthy, I'm not ready yet to throw in the towel on the internet, although I accept all of your observations to be true other than the, in the conclusion that we're worse off. I think it's still too early to tell. It may be true. To my point, as you know, just a few days ago, I would argue maybe the opposite, that it's probably too early to tell just how bad this is, is going to be. Uh, to my point, as you know, just a few days ago, Sheila Sweeney and I are having a conversation at an event in Miller about Medicare for All. The following morning, she had a Facebook page up and running to serve as a forum for Northwest Indiana residents to organize to promote Medicare for All in our region, which is great. One day later, 34 people, including you, had joined as members, some of whom were recruited to join, not by us, but by a second generation of people we had recruited, which prompted me to do the math that at that rate, starting with those 34 people, and if each of us talk to 10 people, educate them on Medicare for all, persuade them to continue to learn enough more about it, to speak comfortably with others about Medicare for all, and then went and spoke with 10 more people, recruiting them to do the same, learn, teach, and recruit with 10 others, we'd only need four generations to be on the cusp of having a one-on-one -on -one conversation about Medicare with all with every voting age adult in Lake Porter and LaPorte counties. That's not what we're asking right now, but it could be. I mention this to show the potential for using the Internet for viral education of Northwest Indiana voters about Medicare for all to inculcate them against the propaganda from the insurance and pharma industries and the politicians in their pay is tremendous. You can conduct an outreach campaign with traditional door knocking or rally hosting, but you just can't match the speed or reach of the Internet for communication. One of the new members is from Hammond originally, but is now in Thailand. We, what we have now is a much broader marketplace of ideas. We just need to use the tool. Okay, so several things in this. Um, yeah, Joe, I agree. The mass media has been controlled by corporations and owned by the wealthy, and so is the Internet. So it's not that I'm ready to throw in the towel. It's simply a recognition that the Internet is absolutely no different than the corporations you spoke of before. And again, in terms of whether or not we're worse off, uh, there, there is no suggestion. If it's hard to determine whether or not we are worse off because of the Internet, in other words, what is the causation of our many ills, then it definitely is true that we are not better off. So there's no evidence to suggest that we are better off because of the Internet. I think there's plenty of evidence to suggest that we are worse off. And again, I would argue that as time moves along and as the numbers of people who are prescribed anxiety medication and antidepressants increase, the data will come out that is very clear that if you spend massive amounts of time with two-dimensional screens – and out of the presence of human beings in the living world, yeah, it turns out not only are you going to probably have a difficult time doing daily things like having conversations with people, talking with people who disagree, you know, sitting face to face and having lengthy reflective discussions about the most important topics of our day. All of that aside, what you're going to find is that you're going to be super depressed, super addicted and super anxious 
And I'm meeting more and more people who are falling into those categories. And I would argue that a good portion of that has to do with the amount of time they're spending with this two-dimensional screens, along with many other two-dimensional screens. Some estimates suggest that the average American, according to a, a latest report that CNN reported on, uh, are spending close to eight to 10 hours a day uh, with a two-dimensional screen. That could be a TV, laptop, desktop computer, iPad, or their iPhone. So yes, it is true. And, and, and here, yeah, I, I agree that social media can be used as an organizing tool. However, and this is the big caveat, if you don't have the face-to-face -face interactions, if you don't have, if you don't build those kind of relationships, all of this, these numbers on Facebook, like we've got 5,000 people in our Facebook group, it doesn't fucking mean anything. It just doesn't mean anything. It, it, outside of a real structure in the real world, if these people are not meeting with each other, holding meetings, talking about strategy, coming up with their objectives, figuring out what they want to do, who they want to elect, what projects they want to stop, what forms of civil disobedience or direct action they want to take, targeting insurance companies or government entities or hospitals or so forth, then it just doesn't really matter how many people you have in a Facebook group. If those people already know each other, that's a much different thing. I've seen, and in my experience, social media can be great. It can be used as a, as a really effective organizing tool, but only when the people who are engaging on that platform already have pre-existing relationships or connections with the people they're trying to connect with. That's the important caveat. And yeah, I mean, in, in terms of uh, people I, I hear again, I disagree. I think this is a misunderstanding of the American public, this idea that Americans need to be inculcated from propaganda from the insurance and pharmaceutical industries. Uh, again, I disagree. The majority of Americans are for Medicare for all. So it's not a matter of and this is where a lot of left wing progressive people get themselves in trouble. Um, it's not a matter of changing people's minds. It's a matter of actually building power. It's a matter of it's it, the majority of people in the United States already want expanded healthcare coverage. So just stop the argument right there. So all this, like we need to educate people. We're just going to go and tell people negative people already want it. So now the challenge is actually organizing and that's different than educating. This is different than simply uh, drawing awareness to an issue. And in that way, a lot of people's projects break down because as we've talked about in the past, most people just don't understand the principles of organizing. So they kind of run around in circles until they get burnt out or until they come to the conclusion that everybody's just fucked up and, and nobody really wants to do anything and there's no hope for anything. As we've talked about using many sports analogies, again, you know, you can go to the gym every day and if you don't know what you're doing, you're not going to get much out of it. It's the same with organizing. So moving on. Jay Eric, I agree with the sentiment that we could all use a great deal less screen time, TV included. Your suggestion that we all revisit the commons is always wise. I don't know if the internet will or won't live up to the gargantuan task of radically transforming society for the better. I don't know that it's meant to. It'd be nice if it did, but it's still young. Wouldn't you as an activist say the internet has helped you get information out and with coordination? Not to mention you and I and many more do actually virtually take advantage of access to Noam Chomsky like never before. And finally, don't mess with Internet porn. Well, Jay, Eric, I'm sorry, but Internet porn is uh, 
again, one of the more toxic elements of the internet. And study after study after study suggests that large portions of young men are being sexually conditioned. Their view of women uh, being formulated through their experiences with Hollywood and things like pornography, which is selling at a greater rate than Hollywood films. So that's a problem. In terms of what the internet will live up to, I don't expect the internet to, in and of itself, or simply by its own merits, radically transform society. But I think we should be looking for tools that can help us to radically transform society. And yes, I would say that the internet has helped get information out and coordination, sure, absolutely. As I mentioned before, uh, if you already know people, if you already have those existing bonds and networks, then I've seen that it can be used in a great way to simply mobilize people. But that's not organizing. That's just getting people out to events or a conference or a speaking gig or a rally or whatever. But let's not confuse the two. And let's also talk about you know, what are the possibilities without this? You know, what are the possibilities? What, what kind of information could we get out? What kind of coordination could we get out if people were spending less time be behind their computer uh, and more time actually in their communities with people face to face? I would argue that we'd be turning out many more people than what can be turned out for, say, a woman's march or uh, one of these big symbolic and, and toothless uh street theater events or whatever, you know, these sort of big symbolic events that people on the left seem to love so much. I agree. You could turn people out to that using the internet. I would also argue that it's a very shallow form of connecting with people. And if, uh, if we didn't have it around, perhaps information would get out in a different way and perhaps we would simply coordinate in a different way. So by my count, there are many more revolutions before the internet than there have been since the creation of the internet. So how did people do it before? That's something to keep in mind. And it's definitely something to keep in mind in light of the prospect of the Internet simply being gone. I mean, if the Internet does indeed go away one day, what? I, <laughs> oh, I can't imagine the kinds of troubles people would have just trying to figure out how to interact with each other. Basic socialization has become one of the primary challenges in the United States. The Internet. I had such high hopes for it in the 1980s. When the web browser Mosaic came out in 1993, I was floored. Mac users had see you, see me as Skype in 1995, and then the internet was commercialized and banal supremacy drove it to the ground. Now we are all the mannequins of Facebook. As we participate, we drive ads and people are routed to their obsessions. Surveillance is tolerated, consent is manufactured, and little by little our humanity is eliminated. I would – that it had evolved differently. I think as he meant to write, I would have hoped that it would have evolved differently. Thanks for your comments, Chris, and very true. Nazir Ahmed Sanbe. The washing machine is better than the internet. <laughs> I agree. Much more useful form of technology. The washing machine is better than the internet, but education and learning is a new ballgame with the internet. Thanks for that. I agree. It could be. Again, it could be, but it hasn't been. So, I, I mean, this is the, the point that I make over and over again. It could be like many forms of technology, but it isn't, and it never has been. So it leads me little belief. It leaves me little hope uh, to assume that it will be. 
Alistair Rose, sad but true, Vince, when looking for information, it can on a good day be a phenomenally useful tool and interesting too, but most of the time, well, I don't have Netflix or buy online. News, I look for independent news sources. Yeah, very true. It can be a great tool. Sue Klaus, check out the film Unrest. A chronically ill woman used the internet to communicate with other people about the same illness. Now, finally, my illness is gaining research partially because of her. She used Skype for some of the interviews, and I was able to contribute to the first and latter Kickstarters to get this film made. The documentary is now in the running for an Academy Award. I helped that happen. Through the internet, I found Nicholas Kristoff and his efforts to make information available on the missing women in this world. Um, good on Nicholas Kristoff for that. Nicholas Kristoff's foreign policy is also total trash, so I have little respect for Nicholas Kristoff. And it was through that I learned about and now participate in the funding poor women worldwide via Kiva. I don't – yeah, I'm sorry, folks, but I, I have to be honest with you. With all this – this is the kind of bullshit that drives me nuts. It's like, yeah, I mean you want to fund poor I, – I would argue, again, do something in your own community. Um, there's poor women that live in your neighborhood. There's poor women who live in your state. There's poor women who live in your city. Do something for them. And by doing something for them and by changing the political situation in the United States, you're going to have a much easier time uh, not only dealing with your own uh, health issues, but also in helping to protect poor women worldwide, many of whom are the victims of U.S. militarization. I'm sorry, U.S. militarism. With the Internet, I was able to reconnect with friends in Indianapolis from when I lived there over 20 years ago, they have become a great source of comfort to me. The internet is just a tool. It depends how you use it. If you use a hammer to crash out your neighbor's windows, then that's one use of that tool. If you use that same hammer to build houses for Habitat for Humanity, that's a totally different use of the very same tool. It's through the internet that I can read news from The Guardian, the BBC, The Scotsman, and totally avoid Fox News. Please don't kill the internet. If I ever start to feel better from this illness, I would like to go to the free online classes that are offered by the universities around the world. And if I watch shows and movies on Hulu and Netflix, it's because I don't have cable, nor will I ever buy cable. Thanks for your comments, Sue. Look, again, this you are an outlier. Most people are not using the internet to communicate with other folks about mental health or physical illnesses. So this isn't, you are not part of the broader scope of society. And the numbers, again, we've stated are quite clear. The majority of people are not getting – the vast and overwhelming majority of people are not using it for that source. And again, brings into the question, how would people have learned these things? How would you have learned about your illness? How could you have done more about your illness if indeed maybe you didn't have the internet? Maybe there would have been other ways for you to connect with people. Perhaps the only reason – that you've been able to connect on Facebook or through social media or YouTube is because those are the mediums that everyone is on today. So it's like, yeah, okay, this is what you have today. No one actually gets together and talks with each other about things. There are no civic society projects. There are very little social interactions. Uh, so in that context, yes, it, it makes sense that you can find great comfort and benefit from the internet, but that's not the case for most, that's not the case for most people. And again, the, the side, the side I, would, I would make a point that you might find other ways to do that if the internet didn't exist. 
David Swanson, we may have no choice but to live without it, but I certainly don't want to. Well, I totally disagree. I absolutely would love to see a day without the Internet. The middle ground here may be a combination of old cooperative, cooperativism, cooperativism and the new digital work platforms where every worker is an owner. A group in New York City are working on this now. I don't know enough about platform cooperativism to comment, but I will read the article, Elias, and I will get back to you. So that address, uh, he further comments, so that addresses the issue of owning production, hopefully, but not your other point about the sheer time suck of the web. I'm not sure. Again, I don't know what they're doing in New York, but I would argue, Elias, that they don't own the production of these things. Again, unless they control the electric grid, which allows people to charge and operate their computers, we don't own the web. It's just that simple. Um, Michael Regenfuss, I hate the internet. The only reason I got into it in 2010 was for political organizing. Pretty much the same here. I was one of the last holdouts to resist going on the web. I think the main reason I hate the internet is because it has caused and is causing an inner wasting on the mental, emotional, and spiritual level. I can't wait until it no longer exists. I guess in essence, I agree. I mean, I don't necessarily hate the web, though. I mean, there are parts that I enjoy. I mean, I, I genuinely enjoy being able to research things. I genuinely enjoy being able to pull up some music. But it's like with all of those things, how would I do them if the internet wasn't around? And that's what I constantly think about. So if the internet goes away, like, let's be honest, I'm looking at a bookshelf of like, you know, 250 books that I probably should read. That's that simple. And every single person on this thread should be reading more, including myself. So this idea that like, oh my God, what are we going to do? How are we going to find knowledge? How is anyone going to know anything? Well, you're going to have to get back to doing that thing that human beings have done for a long time. That's coming up with symbols, interpreting those symbols, and that's often called writing and reading. So, you know, welcome back to the basics, humanity, because that's where we're going. So I mean, it's like that's not not too hard to figure out. Uh, you know, I don't know how long, which longer people think the Internet's going to survive, not only with this direct assault from corporate and state entities, but also just in this context of ecological collapse. And the, whether we like it or not, if things don't change with the environment, there won't be uh, an Internet because there won't be an infrastructure to support it, nor will there be the raw natural materials that it takes to actually build it and maintain it. Matt Southworth, I'm just glad that I got on the internet this morning to read this post. <laughs> yeah, or not. Um, Andrew Odinson, no going back, only forward. What's better than the internet now? Whatever we make of it, how long will that take? Er, well, okay, we're kind of mimicking the dark ages right now, so a while. Hmm. Stella Blue, she didn't say anything. Tom Collar, not sure if this is the right place, but what about the vote that will happen on the 14th, the one to cancel net neutrality? Okay, so let me just be really clear here, and this is the problem with the internet as well. I, I'm not, and Jay Eric replied, dude, the porn comment was a joke. I was kidding. Well, that's good to hear because it's obviously a major problem in our society, uh, internet pornography, that is. Tom Collard. So let me just be very clear here. We should maintain net neutrality in the short term, okay? So th let's just – I'm just being a little facetious when I'm saying, hey, maybe this will kill it. Maybe that will be the end of the day. Well, you know, 
for 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 the time being, it is clear that we want to continue to maintain what we have in the best way possible. But let's also be clear that we're not going to be able to move forward with an understanding of technology if we don't understand the very basic political economy of the technology. So I talked about this when Steve Jobs died. I wrote an article about it because people were praising Steve Jobs. And I was just blown away by the amount of support and praise that was showered upon Steve Jobs' rotting corpse. And I remember thinking to myself, what, did this ge- what exactly did this gentleman create for us? You know, all these liberals with their MacBooks and iPads and iPhones just loving it. Just the tech world, man, it's so cool. Silicon Valley is so neat and all this. And it's all bullshit. I mean, I just don't see like what in the fuck are you praising? You know, the fact that you now have to walk around with a fucking phone in your back pocket and every fucking asshole and their brother can get a hold of you at any time of the day bothering you with fucking total nonsense. I mean, let, let me also be clear that one of the things for me with the Internet is that I didn't grow up with the Internet. OK, I didn't have the Internet or a computer in my house until I was a senior in high school. So basically 18 years, no Internet. So unlike a lot of people growing up now. I actually remember a time when there wasn't an internet. Now, older people remember this, but a lot of older people were sort of turned on to the internet in their middle age years, the baby boomer generation. Generation X, a little different. My generation, depending on where you, what portion or at what end you fall of that generation, the millennials, it's clear that, you know, for someone like myself, who's 33 years old, I lived 18 years without the internet and I've lived 15 years with the internet. And... I, I mean, there's no, I have no anecdotal experience that would lead me to the conclusion that the internet has profoundly improved my life in any way, shape, or form at all. Uh, it's here. We use it. You know, it's like cars. Like, have cars significantly improved my life? No. I mean, so for some people, they do. And at some point in history, some people might argue that they did for certain people, for certain interests, but that's not, you know, it's just like, so cars now are one of the leading contributors to climate change. And this is Ronald Wright's work comes to mind here, thinking of progress chaps. So what at one time seemed like a solution to a problem and helps society quote unquote progress eventually becomes the very thing that will sow the seeds of destruction for that society. Cars would be a great example of that. And again, getting back to the political economy of the internet, political economy of these machines that we're using, not only do we not control the vast infrastructure and manpower that's needed to maintain these systems, we also have very little say-so over how these systems are created. So let's think of a cell phone or a MacBook. A cell phone was the example I used in the article I wrote about Steve Jobs. So the materials are extracted from Africa. We have, for those of you listening who have, you know, little kids, imagine you're 8, 9, 10, 11, 12-year-old crawling into a cave or cavern that could very well collapse on them with a flashlight duct taped to their head, barefooted with a raggedy old T-shirt and shorts on, And spending 10 to 12 hours a day in that hole, chipping away with old hammers and chisels at rocks trying to find the rare earth minerals that are required for these forms of technology. 
So that's at the base level. Like at the base level, that's exactly how these technologies are produced. So that's what we're using. That's why I think it's important that people don't go. And I'm not, you know, again, to be clear, I'm not saying that this is like uh, consumer activism. People should just go and, oh, don't buy a computer and then you're totally safe from everything and you don't have to feel bad about this. No, I'm just saying if you have a computer, use it until it breaks, you know try and fix it up. You don't need a new one every couple of years. You don't need a new phone every now and then. Like it's just, just use the shit until you can't use it anymore. There's no reason to get new things. Um, that's part of it that you can control on an individual level. And most people choose not to, which says a lot about their values. Um, the other thing, and that's even more important is just to recognize how this process works. So the materials are extracted from the Congo or from various other parts of Africa they're then sent to the Philippines where little kids and largely women and teenagers are, uh, uh, I'm sorry, further developing the technology and putting the technology together in these little gadgets and so forth. And then those pieces of technology are sent to China to be assembled. So a better way to look at China is not so much as the production center of the world, but more of the world's assembly plant. There's a great article written a few years ago by John Bellamy Foster that really talks about this at length, and I think it's really important. So a lot of these components are actually produced in the peripheral nations and then sent to China for assembly. So then assembled in China by, again, another poor worker, largely women um, and largely underage folks. And then that product is shipped to the United States or Western Europe or the more wealthier nations, cities, and enclaves within Asia. And it goes to a big box store that's located in any one of the cities or towns in which you live. And at that big box store, some poor sap is getting paid eight to 10 bucks an hour to hawk a $700 to $1,000 cell phone to a bunch of people who don't have the money, credit, or resources to even purchase that phone. So that's, that's what we're talking about. Let's just be real about this. And I, it's no surprise that people don't want to talk about that part of it. You know, so if, I mean, if you want to praise technology, if you think this technology is so wonderful, I would suggest that you take your little brat kid, put him or her in a, in a, uh, airport or an airplane, strap them in, send them to the Congo and tell them to start chipping away for the fucking coal tan that it takes to build these things. If you support this technology so much, if you'd like to praise this technology and the wonderful uses that it has in our lives, then, you know, put your money where your mouth is. Because send your kids to the Congo with a hammer and a flashlight and a roll of duct tape and tell them to get their little asses to work. I'm assuming most of the Europeans and Americans uh, who use that technology wouldn't be willing to do that. Hence, maybe at the very least, and yes, I know it's required for day-to-day -day functions, so I'm not saying just throw it out the window. I'm simply saying perhaps it's time we start to ask the critical, fundamental questions about where this technology comes from, what's needed to maintain this technology, the impact it's had on our lives already, which I would argue is overwhelmingly negative, and the prospects... Um, for future uses of this technology and the threats that such technology poses. I think that's a pretty reasonable way of, of viewing this technology. And yeah, I mean, I, you know, it's, it's really hard to, 
encompass in less than 60 minutes how I feel about the internet because it's so interesting how it's so interesting to me, you know, watching this in real time as an adult, it become, you know, I remember for instance, when I was 18 or 19, the idea that the internet, that everyone was going to have a cell phone was absurd. Basically what I heard when I was a, a teenager was like either rich people had cell phones or it was people who had cell phones for emergency reasons. So these were like people who spend a lot of time out in the wilderness or people who maybe go on long road trips through very rural areas. Like that's what I understood cell phones to be used for. Then I got to 29, I arrived in 29 Palms, California, and I was in the United States Marine Corps. And instead of using a payphone at the barracks, I went to the local Sprint store and bought a Nokia brick phone so I could call my parents and people back home. Immediately, it became a disaster. It became a disaster because you had free talk time after 9 p.m. It was like free, free text and talk anytime after 9 p.m. The person at the store told me, but that's dependent upon the time zone that you're calling, not the time zone that you're in, which was wrong. So they were telling, you know, I'm living in California. It's seven o'clock. I'm like, fuck, I can't call back home in Chicago because Chicago time is nine o'clock. I got to wait two hours. The woman at the store was like, oh, no, no, you can call, you know, as long as your 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 time or the person the the people you're calling as long as they are on the time of nine o'clock or later. Well, of course, that was wrong. And I received like a six hundred dollar cell phone bill in the mail. And I couldn't pay it. I had to ask friends and, and family for help paying it and eventually did pay it off. And I just remember sitting there thinking, man, this is already way more of a pain in the ass than is worth the time for me to just call whenever. And then that that sort of you – know, there's like not much using cell phone throughout the Marine Corps. like calling friends when you're drunk or calling them on the weekends and being like, hey, what's going on? And that, and that way it was nice. Then I'm trying to think, you know, after the Marine Corps – this is 2006 now. I'd say till about 2010. Just had like a shit phone. Didn't really do much with it. Then around 2010, 2011, there was, there was a, uh, a massive shift. Uh, in 2010, 2011, there were a lot more people using uh, social media, a lot more people using cell phones, and, and it became sort of a part of our everyday lives in a way that it had never been before. And at that point, I did get a better phone and primarily, as Michael mentioned in the comments, for organizing purposes. So I got it and I, you know, give people a buzz for events or send them a text message or eventually got on social media and started using, um, I'm sorry, started using social media in a way that was for organizing and yeah, I thought, okay, well, this is an interesting tool. This is something that we can use. And eventually, you know, you get an iPhone or I got an iPhone because I thought, well, hell, this makes sense. I've got an Instagram account now so I can take really high quality pictures of these protests and events and put it out for other people to see. And maybe other people will see that and then come to the events and so on and so forth. And now it's come all the way full circle to where I can see very limited uses for social media. Uh, and I see a virtually no net positive in terms of organizing. Um, I just haven't seen it. And 
you know, a big to-do was made during the Arab Spring and the overthrow of uh, Mubarak in Egypt. And again, I would argue that, yes, you can use that to turn people out and to spread the word. But what people didn't talk about was that people within Egyptian society, civil society, and within the broader Egyptian public had been talking about interacting with each other, sitting in meetings, organizing with each other, educating each other about that very issue for many, 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 many years prior to the advent of and the introduction of Twitter and Facebook. So again, getting back to my original point that I was making to Joe, these platforms can be used very effectively if you already have the pre-existing relationships that are required to build off of them. Otherwise, they're useless. And in fact, they can be quite destructive. So that's basically my history with the internet. I mean, this idea that we're just getting out to all kinds of people, I mean, you know, big deal. I mean, if I talk to a hundred people today or a thousand people the next day, I, you know, the question is, what are they doing with that knowledge? And that's, that's another gap that I see with a lot of folks. There's the gap between understanding what's happening and then actually doing something with that knowledge. And, you know, as, as the uh, old GI Joe saying used to go, knowing is half the battle. So yes, it's great. You know, well, that's half of it. The other half of it is actually doing something in the material world with what you know. And that is more than lacking in our society and in many around the world. So where do we end a podcast like this? Um, you know, I, I can go through. I'll post on the link for today's program. I will post from hostingfacts.com, Internet Stats and Facts for 2017, a list of Internet e-commerce hosting, mobile and social media statistics. Again, what this shows so I'll read through a few of these. There are now 3.7 billion users on the Internet. That means over half of the world's population doesn't have access to the Internet. Asia is the continent with the most Internet users. That makes sense. China has the most Internet users of any country. Of course, that makes sense. The number of people using Internet in China is more than double the population of the United States. That makes sense. The United Arab Emirates is the country with the highest Internet penetration in the world with an impressive 99% of its citizens, or about 9.2 million people using the internet. There's another great, oh God, what a great example of the internet not being a democratizing force. So the UAE is, is a hellhole of a country uh, in terms of their political system and economic system, uh, at least a century, if not two centuries behind the rest of the world. And this is the country with the highest internet penetration in the world. I'm glad. I'm going to be using that statistic again. Again, little to no evidence that anything's going to change fundamentally in the UAE uh, because every single person has the internet. The internet influenced sales to the tune of $2.1 Now we're getting to the nuts and bolts of what the internet is all about. I wish I could reference the book that Sergio just finished. But essentially what the book is saying is the same thing I'm saying today. Most of what the internet is used for is people purchasing shit. That's exactly what it's designed for. That's exactly what it's going to be used for. And as time goes on and as the algorithms become more complex and as the data collection becomes more complex, that is solely what the internet will be used for is an area of commerce, entertainment, and banal communication. So in other words, commerce, Amazon, entertainment, Netflix, and banal communication, social media. That is the overwhelming, and when I say overwhelming, I'm talking more than 75 to 80% of internet traffic is used for one of those three things. For the first time in history, with a projected $205 billion internet and 
internet ad spending compared to a projected TV ad spend of 100. They wrote this ridiculous. So for the first time in history, ads on the internet have outweighed ads on TV. So the amount of ads that people paid for on the internet in 2017 was $205 billion companies paid for advertising on the internet, whereas they only spent $192 billion or only. They spent $192 billion on advertising in TV. This is expected to exceed TV advertising forever from now on. Domain name web hosting web the first the world's first website was published in 1992 by British physicist Tim Berners Lee. 51.8 percent of all internet traffic comes from bots, while only 48.2 percent of internet traffic comes from humans. Google is the world's most visited website, followed by YouTube and Facebook. Well, <laughs> that gets back to my original point. The three things people are using the internet for is consumption, entertainment, and absurd communication. With 58.8% of the market share and about 20.6 million active sites, WordPress is the world's number one CMS. It hosts sites like the New York Times, blah, blah, blah. The number of hacked sites, this is interesting, in 2016 increased by 32% compared to 2015. And Google has publicly said that it isn't expecting this to reduce anytime soon. The e-commerce industry is responsible for about $2 trillion in annual sales. Again, getting to the nuts and bolts of what the internet is all about. For every $92 spent on generating traffic and getting customers, only $1 is spent on converting these customers. Only 35% of shoppers are willing to pay for delivery on online orders at all. The remaining 65% are unwilling to pay for shipping on online orders. Okay, what does that mean for the working class? 56% of every dollar spent in an office store is influenced by a digital interaction. So even in an offline store, that means an actual physical space in which one walks, 56 cents on the dollar was influenced by some kind of digital interaction, meaning they got your ass. Whether you're on social media or searching something online, they found what you search for and what you're interested in because of that data collection, because of those algorithms, and now you're walking your broke ass through a store to buy some other shitty piece of material that you don't need. Only 22% of businesses are satisfied with their conversion rates. Men spend 28% more money online than women. People spend an average of five hours per week shopping online. 95% of Americans shop online at least once a month. Okay. Well, there you have it, folks, the wonderful World Wide Web. You're listening to Meditations and Molotovs. I am your host, Vince Emanuele. This is the Progressive Radio Network, where you can find us every Monday at 1 p.m. We will talk to you next week.